Part 2. Pseudo-randomness. Pseudo-randomness is a process that appears to be random, but is not. Pseudo-random sequences typically exhibit statistical randomness while being generated by an entirely deterministic causal process. Such a process is easier to produce than a genuinely random one and has the benefit that it can be used again and again to produce exactly the same numbers, useful for testing and fixing software. Pseudo-randomness, Wikipedia. Let me see your war face. If you ladies leave my island, if you survive recruit training, you will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death, praying for war. But until that day, you are pukes. You're the lowest form of life on earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. R. Lee Ermey as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, Full Metal Jacket, 1987. June 2010. This is how Y Combinator works. For three months, the selected startup founders meet weekly for a dinner with some eminent startup personage. The dinners are not relaxed social affairs. They're competitive demos in which founders try to one-up each other with increasingly developed products, upward-sloping user graphs, or funding news within a context of techno-camaraderie and shared suffering. The weekly cadence imposes order on the always full-throttle startup chaos, and is a welcome respite from the grinding toil and stomach-churning stress. I always tried to sit directly in the front row to take the speaker's measure. Marissa Meyer's hands shook, and she spoke at an anxious clip. She arrived escorted by a Google handler, the only speaker to do so. Reed Hoffman, a large man, thundered like an emperor at the head of his troops, and spilled wonderful stories about the PayPal saga, the founding of LinkedIn, and going to war with Microsoft. He was by far one of the best speakers. You felt like kicking your way through a brick wall when he was done. And on it went with the creators of Gmail and Yahoo Mail, partners at Sequoia and Google Ventures, the founders of Airbnb, Eventbrite, and Groupon and the like, regaling us with war stories from the tech trenches. The dinner food was what Paul Graham politely called goop on rice, an occasionally foul, sporadically delicious stew of random ingredients tossed over a bowl of rice. PG, or one of the other partners, would dole it out themselves, the founders forming a meandering line, like a Depression-era soup kitchen. YC's main space had a full kitchen, and supposedly PG actually cooked the goop himself, or at least he had in the early days. The creamy stuff with peas and some mystery fish was without a doubt the worst. Those were bad weeks. Microwaved spackling paste surely tasted better. There was general agreement the meatballs on pasta were the global maximum, which was saying something. You obviously weren't there for the food, or even the distinguished speaker's company. The real YC selling points were the following. Access to the YC partners, access to the network of YC founders, a bankable patina of prestige, and demo day. The value of the partners will be made clear as this story progresses. The value of the network of YC companies is that it essentially constitutes a private microcosm of the greater tech world. This is often derided as the YC mafia by outsiders. Mafia is a pejorative term bringing to mind tracksuit-wearing Russians bolting vodka, shouting into burner cell phones, and whispering to each other in raspy Slavic tones. There is a feeling of collective defense around YC, and it does know how to circle the wagons if threatened. The real network effect, however, was this. With the pool of YC companies expanding every year, you could probably recreate 80% of the consumer and infrastructure technology used in our Internet-enabled age exclusively with Y Combinator companies. Whatever need you had, whether system monitoring tools, mobile development, or even marketing tools, have you heard of our product, AdGrok? You could find a YC company to fill it. Given that you were one of the family, you could expect excellent service and a steep discount. You could also be sure that whatever you were building would receive preferential adoption by others in the YC network, providing you with an instant set of savvy and patient users, as well as impressive logos to feature in a pitch deck. This tendency to dog food YC products came straight from the top. The day YC funds an airline, I suspect PG will fly that one and no other. 
As for the value of the bankable prestige, we'd see just what that was soon enough. So, what were we building in Y Combinator? To understand that, we'll need one last lecture on online media, and then I'll step down from the pedagogical soapbox. It's pure money, sex, and death after this, I promise. How does Google manage to generate yearly revenues of $70 billion, greater than the GDP of Luxembourg or Belarus? It invented this magical website called Google Search, where all of humanity goes and tells Google what it wants. Nikon D300 camera, online nursing degree, divorce lawyer in Atlanta, a world of three- and four-word desires and needs, all craving to be satisfied, all backed by wallets waiting to be opened. Injecting themselves in that last moment of purchase, at the apex of desire, Google invites you to click on an ad. Its cash register rings every time you click. It doesn't even need to figure out what a search query is worth and price it accordingly. It simply holds an auction for every search query entered at the moment the query occurs. The net result is that billions of times a day, Google runs an auction of keywords and accompanying bids. By looking at the bid and estimating the likelihood of a click, Google takes the product of the two, which is how much it will make per query, and picks the highest. Then it displays the associated ad that the advertiser has created and uploaded to Google for that keyword. Actually, printing physical money would be harder. So, how many such search queries, or keywords, in Google speak are there? The second edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, released in 1989 and since supplemented, contains 291,000 word entries. The Vordenboek der Nederlandse Taal, a dictionary of the Dutch language and the largest monolingual dictionary in the world, runs to 50,000 pages and 431,000 entries. Both works are dwarfed by the size of the keyword lists maintained by those lexicographers turned word merchants, the search engine marketers. Like a stock portfolio manager who keeps a set of assets with a theoretical and current price, the paid search manager maintains encyclopedic word lists along with dollar sign values and constantly adjusts bids to reflect realized performance. These lists literally number in the millions and look something like keyword. Divorce lawyer in Reno, cost per click, $1.45, revenue per click, $0.90. Cents. Nevada cheap divorce, $0.75, cents cost per click, $1.10, revenue per click. Nevada divorce lawyer, cost per click, $5.55, revenue per click, $2.75. Like the classic stock picker, buying low and selling high, our search engine marketer curates and trims a keyword list like a bonsai tree, buying more of well-performing keywords and fewer of bad. If the revenue generated by post-click sales outpaces cost, up go the bid and the budget, and the reverse in the opposite case. The ratio of revenue to cost is known as Return on Advertising Spend, ROAS, and is the basic metric all marketers in every medium use. As an example, ROAS is $1.10 divided by 75 cents minus 1 equals 47% for Nevada cheap divorce above. This means for every dollar I put into Google for that keyword, I get $1.47 back, at least as projected based on historical data. I'm happy to do that all day. Time to up the budget. Such is the essential busywork behind how a Google makes more than some European countries produce in a year. That's it. You now know as much as the best search engine marketers in the world. As a piece of clickbaity news, want to know which is the most expensive word in the English language? Around 2011 or so, and probably still up to this day, the priciest word in the global auction on words was mesothelioma. This tongue twister is a rare form of lung disease common among former asbestos plant workers. Thanks to a series of class-action lawsuits against former factory owners filed by plaintiff's attorneys who make fortunes on contingency fees, the value of this word was bid up as high as $90 per click. Want to screw a slimy lawyer? Google mesothelioma and start randomly clicking on the ads that appear. You're costing a lawyer almost a whole Benjamin every time you do that. Lung cancer words, despite their superlative cost, are still a pretty niche market. What are the costliest Google keywords among relatively high-volume keywords? The ranking changes, but the top 10 is always composed of some combination of insurance, loans, mortgage, classes, credit, lawyer, and so on. 
These are literally Google's moneymakers, which pay for the Android phones, the Chrome browser, the self-driving cars, the flying Wi-Fi balloons, and whatever weird, geeky, philanthropic shit the company is up to recently. Think about this in the context of more traditional industries for a moment. Chain restaurants like McDonald's have a best-performing outlet in a particularly busy high-rent district. Automakers have a particularly popular best-selling model like the Ford Fusion or the Chevy Impala that makes their quarter. Google has the words insurance and loans. Those are its flagship moneymakers. It is a tech empire built on snippets of words and phrases flitting through people's minds. You, as a mere consumer, don't see it, but how Google ranks keywords and runs the auction determines the fate of billion-dollar companies and industries. As the gatekeeper on buying interest, Google is the bouncer at the door of almost any Internet-enabled business today. And if you, as the business owner, don't pay your bouncer well, he'll shut you down, as Google has done more than once. So what was our angle on this? Very simple. This mountain of money Google earns doesn't flow through the simple ads-buying tools it provides. Those are too rudimentary for the experienced marketer. Middleman companies, like brokers on an exchange, offer sophisticated tools for those spending millions a year on Google keywords. Small businesses, though, the custom jewelry maker with an online store on Etsy, the local plumber, have no such tools, as Google's crude tools are also too confusing for them, and the auction and keywords too dynamic. It's as if the financial world had large investment banks like Goldman, but no Charles Schwab for the average investor to use. Since Google makes most of its money elsewhere, and in any case doesn't have the patience or internal culture to create tools for small advertisers, the tools it does offer are dauntingly complex and ineffectual. The outstanding problem here is like the last-mile problem of an Internet service provider. Some piece of technology is needed to travel from the fat pipe fiber-optic cable to the home user wanting to stream Netflix. We would be that last link, allowing a mom-and-pop to finally spend money on Google, rather than pissing away some experimental budget and then getting burned out due to poorly performing keywords or ill-advised bids. We had plenty of competition. A company named Clickable, now dead, had an all-star cast of advertising investors and had raised over $32 million to crack this same nut. Lexity, now dead, was founded by a former Yahoo exec and raised $6 million. Trotta, now dead, had pursued the interesting approach of crowdsourcing the problem, establishing a marketplace where advertisers could easily find campaign managers to do the workaday management of Google search campaigns. It raised $19 million, including money from Google Ventures, the venture arm of the very partner company it was connecting to advertisers. You'll notice lots of casualties here. We didn't know it at the time, but nobody would succeed in closing the last-mile gap between Google and the universe of small business. To this day, it's an unsolved problem. Despite all this techie-fix-it boosterism, not every problem has an engineering solution. That doesn't mean, of course, that you can't sell one. Following the YC playbook, we'd do boot camp close to YC headquarters, isolated from the beguiling distractions of San Francisco. I found us a cheap one-bedroom apartment to serve as an office three blocks west of Castro Street, the main drag in Mountain View. Other than serving as Google's hometown, Mountain View is just one more in the string of towns dotting the 101 and the Caltrain line from San Francisco to San Jose. More downmarket and working class than posh Palo Alto or Menlo Park, it housed a couple of startups, as well as the law firm Fenwick & West, an entity we would sadly come to know well. Smack in the middle of downtown was Red Rock Coffee, about the most hacker and startup-y cafe on the peninsula, whose weaponized sugar and caffeine mochas would keep us going through the coming weeks. Footnote. The other star in the startup cafe firmament is Koopa Cafe in downtown Palo Alto. That's where you go to talk up investors, plot with co-founders, and scope out the female scenery in PA, which is dominated by Stanford undergrads and is impressive by Bay Area standards. And footnote. I had just moved out of my mission bachelor pad in SF and in with British Trader and little Zoe. At this point, our relationship situation was tenuous but hopeful and had furniture to spare. Our corporate headquarters soon had a futon, a mattress we'd tossed on the ground in fine Tijuana whorehouse style, and three desks we made out of cheap interior doors from Home Depot and sawhorses. 
We used the YC nickels to buy some computer hardware, monitors, new machines for the boys, and we set to work coating our fucking asses off. In the first week in the pad, while we waited for our Geary's to disentangle himself from Adkami, MRM and I sketched out the vision for what the Adgrok product, called the Grok Bar, would look like on two big 4x8 sheets of marker board, $11.99 at Home Depot. Footnote. Of course, it wasn't even Adgrok yet at the time. The very first name listed on our YC application was Vendiamo, Let's Sell in Italian, followed by the short-lived Adshag. This last horrible name was inspired by a British trader comment to the effect of, if you turn that startup office into a shag pad, I'll kill you. A shag is technically a seabird, resembling a cormorant. MRM coined Adgrok, and it stuck. The Grok reference is, of course, to Heinlein and the resulting hacker lingo meaning to deeply understand. End footnote. Our initial discussion of the Grok bar actually dated to an email from me to the boys on April 16th while we were still at Adkami and was a shameless rip on the recently discontinued dig bar. This was a special window that lived inside the user's browser and allowed him or her to dig, an early version of a Facebook-like, a piece of content. Rather than requiring site owners to include special dig code on their website or requiring a user to cut and paste URLs into dig.com, a browsing user could simply comment and dig stuff as part of his or her normal browsing behavior. It was as if someone surfing the web had a heads-up display that showed the Internet's opinion of each piece of content everywhere that person went online. Given its parentage, the early Grok bar closely resembled the Dig bar in that it accompanied users as they navigated their own online shop. Stuck in the upper reaches of a browser pane, it was slim and relatively unobtrusive, listing stats for the Google ads you were running. As you browsed your online store, the stats would slice the data by the product whose page you were looking at, providing an in-context view of what ads on Google were driving sales for that product and at what price. In the same way that Dig showed your friends comments and likes of an article, the Grok Bar showed you how Google was driving traffic to that product's page, which keywords people were searching for to get there, and how much you were paying to show ads alongside the search results. Of course, the bar would be present only when you were on your online store or company page, and not otherwise. But how to sell it? Most small startups decide to go after the small to medium-sized businesses, SMB, market, because they think it's an easy mark. The enterprise sale is too hard, the sales cycle too long, and big companies too untrusting, perhaps reasonably so, of early-stage companies. So they sell to that venerable couple, that mythical bedrock of American values so loved by politicians, mom and pop. While it's true that mom and pop are likely to try anything once, and that the quality of their typical software and service would make Italian phone companies look cutting edge by comparison, it is also true that mom and pop are phenomenally flaky and are likely to cancel their subscription to even a useful service, making user turnover a problem. Also, given that you're making $50 to $100 per month for every sale, those nickels and dimes mean any sort of high-touch sales process is unscalable, even for underpaid startup founders. So you've got to scale the sale somehow, either by partnering with someone who already owns the SMB relationship, think Salesforce or the advertising departments of newspapers, or by building on an existing platform with small business clients, assuming that's possible with your technology. In our case, we barely had any success with partnering and had modest success with the building. But that's getting ahead of our story. Let's go back to that dumpy one-bedroom on Oak Street in Mountain View, where three scared guys were bailing water to save their lives. Like marriage, but without the fucking. Footnote. This line is a Paul Graham quote about startup founders and is probably the most memorable take on the nature of the co-founder relationship. It's like you're married, but with none of the good and most of the bad. End footnote. You go to war with the army you have. They're not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. Donald Rumsfeld on the Iraq War, 2003. May 2010. The most important decision in a startup, as in life, is picking a partner. It will determine everything that comes after. With the right team, no man or organization can stand against you, and you will ultimately triumph. With the wrong team, 
You'll produce internal problems even faster than the external world can, and your inevitable death will effectively be a suicide. The co-founder relationship goes way beyond the typical professional collegiality one finds in blah corporate life. One can stretch these military analogies too far. Nobody is taking incoming artillery fire here. Who are we kidding? But the startup experience does have a certain comrade-in-arms foxhole quality to it. Nobody believes in what you're doing except this other poor fool sitting next to you, who's just as fucked as you are if you don't succeed. Nothing is keeping the entity going except your shared delusion. And there you sit, working, raging, doing both the best and also the most poorly thought-out work of your life. How well do you end up knowing your co-founders? It got to the point that I could tell who had last used the toilet when I visited our bathroom. Floored with that classic 80s-era terrazzo and finished with chintzy tile, this bathroom was the unholy latrine where three very stressed-out men relieved themselves all day. MRM's shit smelled more grassy and barnyard, in keeping with his mostly vegetarian diet. Argiris's was less compost and more dankly pestilent and human. You'll end up knowing more about your co-founders than their mothers and mates do, given enough time. Consider that when mulling over that work colleague you're thinking of applying to Y Combinator with. This is all very touchy-feely, you might say. How's the money side work? How about titles? Good question, and the first one you should answer with potential co-founders. As per usual, we were unpracticed morons and committed the classic error of every first-time startup crew. That is, we divided the equity equally. 50-50, or all-thirds, or whatever. Fair's fair, right? Here's the situation that creates. At Adgrok, every major decision became this group decision-making circle jerk, which was fine for minor product tweaks and day-to-day -day twiddles, but was absolutely fatal for larger questions of strategic vision and corporate culture. If we had had to make some later-stage product pivot, and we likely would have had to, were we not sold, there's no way we would have gotten agreement among the three of us on it. Such decisions aren't data-driven collaborative conclusions, driven by spreadsheets and pie charts, no. They're bold, intuitive, bet-the-company-moves decided by one individual, similar to a ship's captain in a storm, or a Wall Street trader in the midst of a market move. You live and die by such decisions, and they may well be wrong, but it's more fatal to not make decisions than to make them. Long story short, Adgrok was a complete basket case when it came to founder dynamics, and it was mostly because we were all equal in equity, and therefore in power as well. What's worse, since there were three of us, we'd commonly form two-person factions against one dissident. Personally, I'd go through periods where I was tight with Argiris, of course, against MRM, and then back to MRM against Argiris. It was madness. Learn from our missteps, gentle reader. Here's how it needs to be. Either you've achieved a certain Vulcan-quality mind meld with your founders, your brains welded together in the crucible of some formative life experience, like the military or hard-won work experience, or there's one guy running the show, with at least 51% of the equity. End of story. And titles? The only title that matters in the early days is CEO. Anyone else can call themselves the Grand Poobah of the sublime glories of Cthulhu for all it matters. Startups are benevolent dictatorships. As with pirate ships, whose divisions of spoils were refreshingly egalitarian for the time, startups spread ownership and responsibility more equally than their conventional rivals. But like pirate ships, there's one captain in the startup. He rules essentially by fiat, tempered, of course, by all the superficial niceties of the modern workplace, plus the fact that any employees worth their pay can easily get a job elsewhere. But he still rules. Should confidence in him be truly undermined, the other founders, and more important, board members, can mutiny and conspire to have him removed. But until that happens, the CEO has the last word, despite all the fervid debate that happens in an early-stage startup. Everyone needs to accept that, or absent him or herself from the proceedings. In our first meeting with PG, which took the form of a walk around YC's office building in an industrial section of Mountain View, I was agitatedly sharing our confusion about what to build. In those early days, we were doing an entire ballet of product pivots. After ten minutes, he stopped me. I think the real issue here is that you don't have a clear leader. Pointing to me, he continued, It seems like it's you, from this conversation, but I think you should figure that out first. 
I was already nominal CEO, but with only tepid support from the boys, particularly MRM, who still thought career seniority meant something in tech. He'd been in tech since I was in high school. This PG meeting would solidify my claim to that title. We saw it countless times with other companies in our batch. I'm too conscious of YC Omerta to call them out by name, but there were at least half a dozen out of roughly 30 companies that I knew about, and possibly more, with hotly disputed leadership. Like some third-world country's government, they either crumbled due to infighting or suffered internal coups, leaving some founders out on their asses. PG was prescient enough to diagnose this based merely on a few seconds of a practice demo, or in a first meeting, as he did with us. In one memorable case, I knew both founders, and when the inevitable showdown took place a year later, they had raised a bunch of money and were close to an acquisition. It was positively nasty, but it was something that they should have settled much earlier. As PG told us all, have a leader. Accept that he or she is a dictator. Don't like it? Think you can make a better captain? Then get the fuck out and find your own startup ship to run. If you think this is primitive, wait until we get to how the most successful tech companies worth billions of dollars choose their leadership. What were my comrades-in-arms like then? A true engineer, Matthew McEachin, could expound on almost any technical subject from the esoterica of some hardware driver to the minutiae of Apple's most recent OS X upgrade. He was the sort of guy who saw a street sign dangling off a post and stopped to whip out a leatherman and screw the sign back on, no matter what he was doing beforehand. If it could technically be done, he could technically do it. He also had considerable design chops, crafting our first logo, the website, business cards, anything that required an aesthete's touch. On the minus side, he had an inflated view of his own importance in the Adgrok construct, thinking himself the engine of everything we did, as he was the senior technical person. There's lots more to a startup than your choice of database technology, though, and our Geary's and I were certainly pulling our own weight in our respective ways. He on the technical side, me with everything else. Footnote. To be clear on roles, we all started more or less as equal hackers, with MRM as the clear technical leader given his long experience. With time, this morphed into MRM as CTO, Argiris as all-purpose hacker, and me as CEO slash guy who ran to Trader Joe's for our lunch wraps and made sure rent got paid. This was for less than flattering reasons. One day, after I broke the code base again with some ill-advised code deployment, the boys took away my password that let me commit code. That's when I really became chief email officer, what CEO really means, and started focusing on everything outside a code editing window. End footnote. Worse, he was apt to get distracted by whatever shiny technobauble came his way and, as many line engineers do, to expend all-consuming efforts on quashing some single technical bug or improving some unimportant part of our infrastructure, when those were petty in the overall scheme of things. Despite his lifelong experience in tech, he reminded me of a college-age intern with his Boy Scottish worldview and jejun business and political opinions. He was also emotionally frail and had to be kept happy to be productive, whether that meant monitoring what was going on at home with the wife and kitties, or keeping the ever-belligerent Argiris off his back. If he was rattled or unhappy, his productivity suffered, and we were all rattled and unhappy most of the time. Argiris was a Stanford Ph.D. who had come out of a famous machine learning lab. A true techno-renaissance man, he was capable of doing everything from crafting algorithms to hacking configuration files on servers, and perfectly happy to do either. He was ideal for an early-stage startup, the true multi-purpose hacker who was an asset in any situation. Adkami was his first job out of school, and he hadn't even been there a year before hopping to Adgrok. He brought all the energy and life of untempered youth to Adgrok. The flip side was that Argiris was also temperamental, moody, and pugnacious to the point of picking fights. I sympathized with his personal style, and you could level the same criticism at me as much as him. That whole dark Latin Mediterranean thing was my usual emotional state of being as well, but I sort of recognized that it just doesn't fly in the staid Anglo-Saxon world. Very often, Argiris added more heat than light to most meetings, 
and many a product discussion was demolished by the sudden detonation of his temper, which, like some emotional IED, left nothing but a street full of smoking debris and amputated limbs in its wake. He and I would nearly come to blows on a regular basis, but in that crazy Latin way, we'd get over it and go for a beer later. That emotional heat's more serious and lasting effect was that it bummed out MRM, who'd then stay home for a while to get over the general bad vibe, which only pissed off Argiris and me even more. Argiris also tended to work on whatever he felt like on a given day. Matt, being the CTO and most senior technical guy, should have stepped in and managed his focus, but he didn't actually have the balls to do so, requiring me to come in and occasionally shout Argiris down. The face-offs would leave everyone sullen and did nothing for morale. In addition, and perhaps more seriously, the boys would often quarrel between themselves. I had zero desire to play some peacemaker role and thought two grown men should just hash out their goddamn working relationship already so we could get on with the rest of the show. People go into startups thinking that the technical problems are the challenges. In practice, the technical stuff is easy, unless you're incompetent or really at the hairy edge of human knowledge, for example, putting a man on Mars. No, every real problem in startups is a people problem, and as such, they're the hardest to solve, as they often don't have a real solution, much less a ready software fix. Startups are experiments in group psychology. As CEO, you're both the therapist leader and the patient most in need of therapy. As Jeff Ralston, a YC partner, told us, people don't really change, they just become better actors. For all the existential challenges you'll watch us face in the coming pages, it was no external enemy that would eventually do in Adgrok. No, it was our very natures, the men we saw in the mirror every morning. Speed is a feature. If everything seems under control, you're just not going fast enough. Mario Andretti, Formula One driver. July 2010. There was one day that made us realize exactly what flavor of shit we were in. We'd taste different varieties during our startup odyssey. A shit Sunday is basically the essence of entrepreneurship. But this was the deep shit of anxious self-doubt, that gnawing rodent inside that eats your guts out with thoughts of, can I really pull this off? As an initial sniff test of the characters they had invested in, YC announced we were to have a prototype day a brief demo to reveal to other YC teams what we were working on and, as always, spur us to ever faster product development. Prototype would have been a generous description for Adgrok at that point. Our app barely even worked. There was no production version of it. Footnote. Production is tech-speak for the out-in-the-wild, actually working version of a piece of software. It's what users and the outside world see. Development is the mutable, being-worked-on version of code sitting on some coder's machine, whose last line of code was maybe written two seconds ago inside his text editor. Moving things from dev to prod is the very nature of shipping a new product. End footnote. The only working version of it pointed to the URL localhost 3000, the very sign of technical immaturity. Footnote. Localhost is the routing name for your local machine, and 3000 is the port number. In the Internet Address Scheme, it's the code running as a server on your machine. In production, it would be running on a remote machine and accessible by all. End footnote. It was basically a pile of random code running on one machine. Every team had 90 seconds to present its progress and introduce itself to the rest of the batch. The setting was the spot where our distinguished speakers delivered their weekly harangues, with a projector aimed at the front wall. The other teams would be sitting at the long benches usually occupied during the dinners. Some of the presentations were of finished products, some were early stage, but nobody seemed as behind as we were. Then it was suddenly our turn. I plugged in the laptop, opened our crude tool in the browser, and stepped back to address the crowd and immediately tripped over the power cable to the projector, yanking it forcibly out of the wall, sending the projector swerving across the table and myself almost falling in the process. The screen went blank, plunging the room into darkness, and all of Adgrok started scrambling and cursing, trying to get it back on. By the time we did, I had literally ten seconds left, of which maybe five seconds were a demo. 
It was a complete fucking fiasco of a first appearance. The boys let me have it when the event was over, and I seriously doubted our ability, or more precisely my ability, to pull this thing off. We returned to the grok pad with funerary faces. Here's one of the lessons of the startup game for you. Remember how in high school there was a clique of popular kids, always the center of attention, scoring the cheerleaders and so on? And remember how five years later you came back to your hometown and randomly ran into one of those people with a name tag and a powder blue Oxford working as assistant manager at the local Walmart? Or maybe he was already married to that cheerleader who had gained 60 pounds after squeezing out three kids and they now lived boring lives in the same sort of dumpy suburban home you'd been ambitious enough to escape? Or perhaps the outcome wasn't grim. The valedictorian with his curated portfolio of admissions-winning extracurriculars ends up as an equal peer at your prestige company ten years down the line, just like you. Startups are like that, too. Take one company in our batch as an example, and I should preface this by saying I like this company, knew the founders, and still use their existing product, which is extraordinarily useful. We come here not to troll these men, but simply to cite them as an example of a common phenomenon. The best presentation at Prototype Day, by far, was by a company named Reportive, headed by its suave CEO, Rahul Vora. He was a bit stuffily pretentious, in that way only Indians with British accents can be. The company had already raised a sizable amount of money, launched a successful product, and garnered an ocean of PR buzz. What are they even doing here, I thought, watching Rahul go through his immaculately prepared and presented pitch deck. He wasn't prototyping. He was closing a Series A with this pitch for a tool that insta-stalked the person you were emailing by looking him or her up on every social network in the galaxy. Footnote. Startups raise successive funding rounds for ever higher amounts at higher company valuations in a loosely defined progression of A, B, C, and so on. The size ranges, for example around $2 million to $6 million is a Series A, that define these rounds are ever-changing and are a function of the generosity of the VC market just then. The seed money precedes this. It's the very first money in and is what most of us raised after YC. Unlike bra sizes, the letters don't actually double, for example, double E's. After a certain point, though, it seems they should, given some companies' bloated and diluted capitalization tables. End footnote. Similar to AdGrok, Reportive's product would inject that information into your browser experience alongside your open email, giving you a social and sales heads-up display. Fast forward just two years, spoiler alert, I was one of a handful of product managers at Facebook building the money-making machine there. Reportive had run its course and was looking for a soft landing. I introduced Rahul to Facebook's corporate development team. Facebook decided to pass, but LinkedIn didn't. Reportive had the same aqua-hire exit we had. There's a Jewish folktale about a biblical king who dispatches one of his wise men to craft him a mantra that would both humble the proud and console the unfortunate. After searching in the market, where our wise man consults a local jeweler, he returns to the king with an engraved ring. The king holds the ring close and reads, This too shall pass. So remember that, when lamenting your troubles, contemplating the perceived triumphs of peers and competitors, or rejoicing in that rare entrepreneurial triumph, it will all soon pass, and much faster than you think. To a startup, media attention is like sex. There are only two types, good and better. A founder should prefer to be arrested for public homosexual pedophilic bestiality bah, than to have his or her company ignored by the media. Thus far, our media footprint was fuck-all. Early-stage startups are as much packaging as substance. It was time to make a splash. After the boys would exit the pad, I was left with an empty, trashed, one-bedroom apartment and its soundtrack of the riotous Indians upstairs hosting yet another mystery soiree. My pet theory was that they had porn-watching parties, as the parties would start out with lots of yelling and stamping and suddenly go quiet, like similar parties I had had in my adolescent boyhood. I paced pensively across the scratched hardwood flooring. What's the biggest nerve I could possibly step on in a first post? What else but that gushing fountain of amor propra, New Yorkers' inflated self-regard? Oh yes, the startup gods were smiling.
Context. At dinner the night before, Ron Conway had mentioned being impressed with the startup scene in New York. PG had also made some random comment about it. Recalling my Goldman days, I imagined everything that was supremely wrong with New York startup-wise. The lack of VC, the hustler rather than the builder culture. Wall Street drawing away the best talent, the sniggering looks I got when I announced I was leaving Wall Street for a startup. Anyone who thought New York was fertile breeding ground for startups had never lived or worked there. PG was our genius guru, but like many brilliant minds, he occasionally got things flamingly and egregiously wrong, and this was one such instance. The muses frenetically whispered their ideas, and I started typing. Apropos footnote followed amusing anecdote, followed libelous overgeneralization. After two nights of clacking away after the boys were gone, I had it. A taste. Open versus closed source. New York's entire economy is based on monopolies of information. Wall Street banks make a mint trading because they have inside information on the market flows of the products they trade. Literary agents arbitrage scarce access to book publishers against a mass of hopeful authors. Real estate brokers, and these are brokers on rental properties, not properties for sale, routinely make a 15% commission when you sign a lease, pocketing a good two-month salary, read upwards of $5,000, for the privilege of telling you where there's an apartment free. In New York, those monopolies go unchallenged. In San Francisco, people don't pay two months' rent to a real estate pimp. They create Craigslist and make the pimp obsolete. What else could I pimp out for page views? What other meme was flitting across the national zeitgeist? Oh, who else but my former employer, that vampire squid with its tentacles violating virgins and robbing starving babies across the land, the great capitalist evil, Goldman Sachs. Everyone would cheer on its lynching. Imagine the lurid interest in what life was really like inside, plus the joy at its roasting. It would be a titillating spectacle of taboo revelation. New York tack and life at Goldman Sachs, those would be our first two forays into the corporate-driven, mercenary-written word, content marketing, to use the hideous marketer's term for it. According to the leading PR mythologies, day-of-the-week posting choice was critical. The media boom would reverberate depending on its magnitude and resonance inside whatever industry echo chamber it was launched. And so you wanted a few full-on workdays after launch to let that echo play out. Monday was too soon, as everyone was still jet-lagged, hungover, or otherwise groggy from the weekend, and too busy catching up on email and meetings. By Thursday, people were already thinking about the weekend, and likely ducking out early for their first happy hour of the week. Friday was for burying news, not announcing it. It's when people were fired and bad earnings reports came out. We would post on Tuesday, which left the most time for a PR blow-up to echo across the Internet and across all levels of Internet connectedness, from the assimilated Internet cyborg to the grandmother in Kansas. Around 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, I navigated to that venerable, if niche, corner of the Internet, Hacker News a Reddit-like message board hosted by Y Combinator itself. It's a weird mix of super-technical geeks, hustling YC founders, and that species of simultaneously frustrated and sanctimonious poseur called a wantrepreneur. I posted the piece while asking a few friends to upvote the article to give it some initial traction. Within minutes, it was the number one post on Hacker News, seen by every serious and not-serious young techie in the world. Then Scoble tweeted it, and the shit really hit the fan. Robert Scoble is a mysterious, if potent, figure on the tech scene. He is one of these old, pasty white guys who seem from a previous generation, if not from the outright technological Jurassic. But via the conferences he attends, the people he knows, and the gadgets he messes around with and reviews, as well as his constant tweeting, he is maniacally embroiled in the Valley ecosystem. Officially, he was then ambiguously employed at a hardware startup, but that is the least interesting thing about him. While a bit annoying in his cloying worship of all things tech, he seems fundamentally good-hearted, and he has an extensive Twitter following of Valley A-listers. If I can use the term without succumbing to the vapors, he is a tech influencer, a person whose mere tweet could make or break a company. And there it was, our post tweeted by Scoble.
which was great, except that now the blog wouldn't even load. Our blog server had melted under the crippling flood of thousands of clicks. Absolute fucking panic in the grok pad. Argiris and I stood nervously behind McKeechan as he tried to log into the blog server machine. Naively, we had leased just a single Amazon cloud machine to serve our blog to handle the piss-squirt of daily page views so far. Now MRM couldn't even log into it, so wedged were its CPU and network connections with insane traffic. In the silence, you could almost hear the sound of three sphincters clenching simultaneously. When we refreshed Twitter, the notifications kept piling up. People were retweeting like mad, and exponentially more people were hitting adgrok.com. All of that inbound was for naught, as the server refused to return the HTML version of my magnificent writing, with none of the eyeballs spilling over to the website and the product. Mind you, we were still in closed testing, so nobody could even use our tool. This was about announcing our existence more than driving actual adoption. Also, we had no idea the post would be this successful. If so, we'd have been more prepared, such that maybe people could, you know, actually use our product once they'd been driven to our website. Fuck. Finally, MRM got a command line prompt on the remote blog server. With a few very slow-to-execute commands, he managed to duplicate the blog to other quick-to-deploy Amazon machines and redirect the unfettered firehose of network traffic to all the new machines immediately. MRM, that resourceful savior among engineers, could probably get Linux running on a toaster oven if necessary. I verified by going to the blog on my machine. It was up. We were live again. Time to start politely replying to the favorable tweets and egging on the trolls to keep the viral threads going. The post itself quickly accumulated dozens and eventually hundreds of comments, positive and negative, and both equally useful. By the end of it, we had thousands of signups, the new clickbaity publishers that were only then emerging, like Business Insider, shamelessly copied the juiciest passages and wrote entire posts about them, drafting on our PR momentum. A producer from the television show 2020, that still existed, called from New York. A reporter from Business Insider with the porn star name of Courtney Comstack called with follow-up questions on the New York tech scene. She'd later write about my Goldman Sachs piece as well. A random tech conference in Stockholm invited me to come speak. Expenses paid. People were forwarding the post to renowned New York investors like Chris Dixon and asking for commentary. The social media hills were alive with the sound of Adgrok, and I felt like slim pickings at the end of Dr. Strangelove, a hootin' and a hollerin' and waving my cowboy hat around, riding the atomic bomb down to the ground, eager for the great mushroom cloud. As a strategy, this worked better than expected. Traffic to Adgrok grew exponentially, like Fibonacci's rabbits. We were hitting 50,000 page views a day, which wouldn't be much for the Atlantic, but was a lot for a startup that until the day before had, well, something like a dozen page views a day. If we had been masochists, we could have looked at the web server logs and realized that a half dozen of those views originated from Adgrok or from our families. As always, when the cards are favorable, double down. We still had the second Goldman Sachs post in the ammo bin. I had included a link to the Goldman Sachs post in the New York tech scene one, but few had brooded it about. The PR tsunami had crested nicely on Wednesday and continued on through the rest of the week. By Monday, the hive mind would be on to its next amusing post and we'd need to rekindle interest. This post would be the first in a series of hyperviral blog posts that would put Adgrok on the startup map, if not quite the customer one. Every three to four weeks, another gaseous emanation from the latrine of human thought, a.k.a. me, would appear and rocket us to the top of Hacker News, the tech geek's Cosmo, and make another stir in the evanescent tech buzzosphere. Until Adgrok's very end, search terms like Goldman Sachs and Fuck You, I had written a post about the ever-elusive goal of Fuck You money, would be the most popular terms that led to clicks to our site. Footnote. Fuck you money is the amount of money you need to say fuck you to everybody and live financially independently at a middle-class level in a livable city like San Francisco or Seattle. We'll have much more to say on this before this book is over, as it once loomed in tantalizing closeness before disappearing, possibly forever. End footnote.
It irritated MRN to no end. But hey, I didn't see 50,000 people a day lining up to use the product we had built. We'd take eyeballs wherever we could find them. As a result of the Amazon Web Services near fiasco, plus several more outages and server meltdowns, MRM suggested we run a chaos monkey from time to time. This was a software tool created and open-sourced by Netflix, meant to test a product or website's resiliency against random server failures, such as we just witnessed with the blog. In order to understand both the function and the name of the chaos monkey, imagine the following. A chimpanzee rampaging through a data center, one of the air-conditioned warehouses of blinking machines that power everything from Google to Facebook. He yanks cables here, smashes a box there, and generally tears up the place. The software Chaos Monkey does a virtual version of the same, shutting down random machines and processes at unexpected times. The challenge is to have your particular service, Facebook messaging, Google's Gmail, your startup's blog, whatever, survive the monkey's depredations. More symbolically, technology entrepreneurs are society's chaos monkeys, pulling the plug on everything from taxi medallions, Uber, to traditional hotels, Airbnb, to dating, Tinder. One industry after another is simply knocked out via venture-backed entrepreneurial daring and hastily shipped software. Silicon Valley is the zoo where the chaos monkeys are kept, and their numbers only grow in time. With the explosion of venture capital, there is no shortage of bananas to feed them. The question for society is whether it can survive these entrepreneurial chaos monkeys intact, and at what human cost. D-Day The only thing you've got in this world is what you can sell. Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman August 26, 2010 whether justly or no, there are specific events in life during which our characters are weighed and assayed. An all-important entrance exam, the audition in front of the big-shot director, a hard-to-get job interview. Sometimes we don't even know the moment is one of those fulcrums on which life hinges. A first date with our future mate, the moments before a debilitating accident. Y Combinator Demo Day is just such a pivotal event. You cast your little white ball on the roulette wheel of life and it comes up either a winner or a loser, and so do you. The best you can hope for, if you're an underdog outsider like me, and if you're not, you'll take it merely as you're entitled to, is a place at the biggest roulette table you can find. Well, that much we had achieved, but where our little white ball would stop, we had no idea. The rules of the demo day game are these. Each of the 30-odd companies in the YC batch has two and a half minutes to present or demo its product and aspiring business to the massed crowd of Silicon Valley venture capital elite. Since Y Combinator's space was so tiny, the presentations would go in three salvos, each in decreasing order of importance of the attendees. That is, Sequoia would appear in the first salvo, Comcast Ventures in the last. Footnote. Beginning in 2015, YC rented out the Computer History Museum's vast amphitheater, obviating the need for several rounds of demos. A batch is also now composed of almost a hundred companies, such has the institution grown. End footnote. The companies would present in a pre-assigned but random order, the entire demo marathon lasting some two hours, with two breaks in between sessions. As a sort of practice run and teaser reel, there were two rehearsals of the demo day pitches, one to everyone else in the batch and one to YC alumni, playing stand-ins for the VCs. Many of the alums were investors in their own right, so it was only a partial practice. This would help hammer out the significant bumps in every demo and alleviate some of the severe stage fright of many YC founders, including this one. Brave in technology and innovation, but perhaps a bit more gun-shy in the more human arts of marketing and self-promotion, YC founders needed a shakedown pass or two before the real money men were in the room. The name Demo Day is something of a misnomer. It's rare to have an actual demo of a product at the event. Given the tight time constraints, it would be almost impossible to walk a potential user, consumer, advertiser, whatever, through any sort of realistic product exposition. Even if you were able to pull it off, most investors were at least as interested in the business side as the tech side, 
So unless the tech side was miraculous, demos were a waste of time. So the first rehearsal in front of our cohort kicked off. I had practiced the pitch to the point that I'd be repeating the script in my dreams for years, so go time was itself uneventful. The Adgrok pitch was simple. Google AdWords represented an immense river of money, much of which was completely undammed or untouched by anybody, as it flowed in its majestic course from the world to Google. We were going to get our hands on a part of it. Even if our take was a small fraction, it would be enough to satisfy the dreams of startup avarice. By way of entertainment, or perhaps to signal quality, the YC management held an anonymous vote among the founders for the best pitch following our rehearsal. Adgrok came in second place, close behind Reportive, whose polished prototype day pitch had so dismayed me. Rather different outcome from me tripping over the cable like Charlie Chaplin while showing off a non-existent product, wasn't it? In the summer of 1996, I ran with the Bulls in Pamplona. Hemingway oversold the whole thing. For starters, there's no running of the Bulls. There's a citywide festival called San Fermin, after the patron saint of Pamplona, which involves a series of bullfights as an incidental part of the general merriment. In order to transport the fighting bulls from the corral on the edge of town to the bullring, the ever-impractical Spanish decided to simply run them through town. Also in typical Spanish fashion, the local mozos decided to run in front of the galloping bulls to prove their manhood. Fast forward a few hundred years, and it's now the Mardi Gras of decadent European youth. The geometry of the thing works like this. Stout wooden barricades rising higher than you are tall line the streets of the route. Come 8 o'clock that morning, the local police officers clear the route of drunks and tourists by whack of a baton if necessary. They leave one route of ingress open, close to City Hall, for all the potential runners. Then they close the barricades. Anyone left inside is there at the risk of his or her life. For the next ten minutes, nobody will attempt to save you, and in that stretch of rough, cobblestone street, there is neither God nor law. I stood there during those ten unforgiving minutes before the release of the bulls. The sensation was one of prickly intensity. Life slowed down in that grainy, black-and-white way in which your brain mimics the JFK assassination reels when you're doing something seriously dicey. Grown men stood with gray, downcast faces, pondering their mortality, perhaps for the first time. Some looked excited for the fray, others just busied themselves with last-minute prep like stretching that was probably more mental than physical. Soon enough, we heard the hooves clacking on cobblestones and started running for our lives. You'll accuse me of embellishment, but waiting outside the Y Combinator space on demo day felt the same way. It was an unseasonably hot day, almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and YC had set up a makeshift tent to shield us from the sun. At the run-through, we'd made the minor mistake of tipping our hand and had donned our custom-made Adgrok shirts. By the time the real demo day rolled around, every startup had put in rush orders and appeared in logo-branded t-shirts. Since each company chose one background color for its swag, the anxious mob was now composed of two- and three-person cliques, all with color-coded tees, a herd of micro-gangs composed of unhealthy-looking geeks. People languished about, waiting their demo turn, either alert and reciting their pitch lines, reclining and toying with laptops or phones, or passed out on the floor, anticipating the inevitable. After waiting our turn, I stood in the Next Up booth, getting wired to a mic by Y Combinator CFO, an unflappably chipper Brit named Kirsty. The polite applause for the previous pitch dying down, I took the stage. Cued by whoever was running the laptop, I lit into it like I had just mainlined a handful of cocaine. Screenshots flew by, logos of all the current customers, growth rates, $70 billion market, Google is just the first step. There was even an appropriate amount of laughter at the one half-naked woman we'd snuck in. A lingerie company was using Adgrok to sell fancy bras. It all went as practiced, even better. If the VCs were falling asleep before Adgrok, they sure were awake after. Two and a half minutes later, it was done. Then we waited. These tightly choreographed demos were interspersed with bladder-saving intermissions, during which the startup teams were unleashed on the flower of Silicon Valley capital to pitch their wares. All in all, there were about 150 founders, and at least that many investors in each demo day bracket. So during every intermission, and for hours after, the space was absolutely nut-to-butt packed. 
The mob was a roiling sea of 20-something geeks in logoed t-shirts and jeans and rich white guys, and they were almost all rich white guys, in button-down shirts and slacks. All were mingling and talking in and listening in all directions at once, and you literally had to elbow your way past massed twosomes, threesomes, and moresomes as you circulated around. It was a mosh pit of greed and glib persuasion, ambition trading itself for money, trading itself, hopefully, for more money in the future. The boys also joined the fray, collecting business cards and names with both hands. It was the most thrilling and terrifying few hours of my life, and the coming weeks and months would be filled with echoes of that chaotic traffic.